Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as we continue in our exposition of Romans. Uh, we are in our 49th uh, week and we come uh, to a new section uh, where we'll spend just a couple of weeks uh, exploring uh, some very important uh, instruction for the life of the church and Christian uh, discipleship. Uh, the book of Romans is a veritable catechism uh, for uh, the early church and for the church throughout the ages. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, how does uh, the law relate to the gospel and the gospel to uh, the law? Uh, so let us now stand uh, as we read from God's word in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15 and through verse 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness." But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become, become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our loving Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and theologian uh, in Germany uh, during the Second World War. Many of you will know of his life and have read perhaps biographies on uh, his life. Bonhoeffer boldly and unashamedly preached the gospel and courageously resisted uh, the wicked Nazi regime only to be executed in the final months of the war on April 9th, 1945. Some of his most memorable words are found in a book uh, that he wrote entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, which some of you will be familiar with, he speaks of cheap grace. Cheap grace. And what is cheap grace? Well, he explains, quote, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, 
communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life, namely Jesus Christ. In other words, cheap grace does nothing and demands nothing. Cheap grace does nothing to us and demands nothing of us. It is salvation, in other words, on our terms, which is no salvation at all. We live in the age of expressive individualism where everything is supposed to be on our terms. What is your truth, may I ask? Oh, that's nice. Now I'm going to tell you my truth. And those two truths might be totally contradictory, and yet both can walk away being totally satisfied in these contradictions. This is the world in which we live. You see, this cheap grace is salvation on our terms. But really, it's no salvation at all. It's moral confusion. Cheap grace delivers from sin's penalty, but leaves a person under sin's power. It is salvation without discipleship, redemption without surrender, liberation without sanctification. But true grace, beloved, is a costly grace, saving us from the power and penalty of our sins through faith in Christ alone and saving us into a life, saving us into a life in union with Christ, into a life of growing and grateful obedience, a life of sincere and often costly discipleship. Please, please get this. This is so Central. This is at the very core of Christian discipleship and Christian piety. Jesus didn't call us to a life of worldly comfort, but of humble cross-bearing. Jesus did not call us to a life of worldly comfort. That is the prosperity gospel. Doesn't mean we won't experience comfort in this world or different creature comforts. Doesn't mean we aren't supposed to enjoy various creature comforts. Comforts, But that is not why Christ saved us, to make us healthy and wealthy and comfortable. Now, Jesus called us not to a life of worldly comfort, but of humble cross-bearing. In Mark 8, 34 and 35, our Lord Jesus called the crowd to himself and also his disciples, and he said this, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, Let him deny himself and take up his what? His cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. United to Christ, dear ones, we are no longer our own. 
We are Christ's. We are Christ's freed from the shackles of sin. We are now shackled to Christ. We are his bond slaves, and this should be our greatest comfort, both in life and in death. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? What a comfort. Who wants to be the one who has all the comforts of the world and yet doesn't know that comfort when lying on their bed? You heard me pray earlier about my dear mother-in-law. An extraordinary woman. Godly woman. Woman of faith in Christ. I do not worry for one moment about where she will be headed when she closes her eyes in death. I've had the same thought about some of you who have been on the verge of death over the last several years. That's the greatest comfort, not only to the person who is dying, but to those who are surrounding them in those moments. Our greatest comfort in life is not the accumulation of possessions or degrees on the wall or status in this world, but are we in Christ? Do we know him? By grace through faith. Are we in him? Are we identified with him? Is he our life? Or is he an afterthought? See, here we get to the very core of what it means to be a Christian in Romans 5 and 6. Dear ones, as we begin this new section of Romans Six This morning, we are going to see once again that union with Christ is not without ethical dimensions. The apostle wants his readers, he wants all of us to understand that when a sinner is brought into union with the living Christ, not only is he liberated from slavery to sin and death, not only is he justified by grace through faith in the work of Christ, he also becomes an obedient bond slave of Christ, a slavery which, ironically, is the truest kind of freedom. Slavery to Christ is the truest kind of freedom, and we will unpack these ideas in the next few minutes. Beloved, my outline for this morning is very simple. Uh, First of all, we have a rhetorical question. Uh, Secondly, an inspired analogy. And thirdly, a glorious Redeemer. A rhetorical question, an inspired analogy, and thirdly, a glorious Redeemer. And once again, we are not going to deal with with all of this section uh, this morning. We will deal with uh, it in part, uh, and we will, over the next couple of weeks, uh, deal with uh, the rest. First of all, we have a rhetorical question here in verse 15. Look there with me again at verse 15. Paul asks, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, he says. For the second time in this section, 
chapter 6, the apostle is anticipating erroneous thinking, erroneous responses to his teaching about the saving grace of Christ. The first time, you'll remember, is in chapter 6 and verse 1. And verse 1, Paul had declared earlier in chapter 5 that where sin increased because the law was given, and when we see the law, we see how poorly we keep the law. And so in a sense then, sin increases, but where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And then Paul anticipates a question when talking about this marvelous grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Having that, that attitude, well, I love to sin and God loves to forgive, so we make a great team. We make a good partnership because I like living according to the flesh and he likes giving forgiveness. And you know, sometimes this is how people think about the Christian faith. But it's the farthest thing from the truth. Are we to continue, continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should I feel free to continue in patterns of unrepentant sin since God's grace is abundant in Christ? How does Paul answer this assertion? He says, by no means. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That is, how can we who died to the power and reign of sin through faith in Christ and who have new hearts and who have the Holy Spirit within us, how can we still live under sin's power and still desire its presence? He says something similar in verses 14 and 15. Did you notice in verse 14, he writes that united to Christ, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You know what this is? teaching us, uh, among uh, many things, is that when you are saved by God's grace, something happens to you. There's a supernatural work of God. Amen? It's supernatural. This is part of the problem with modern-day evangelicalism, which is leaning leftward and more leftward and more leftward and embracing so-called progressive Christianity, is that it is losing its supernatural bearings and import. It's basically Christianity without God. It's Christianity that's focused on our happiness and our creature comforts and our programs and whatever you're going to provide for me and my family in the local church. And it's focused on the community, social justice and, and being active in the community, doing deeds of love and mercy. Meanwhile, the supernatural powerful gospel power which comes through the preaching of God's word that raises the dead to life and gives new life in Christ is being marginalized and even forgotten in the life of the church and in the preaching of the church. With these things in mind, listen to so much of the preaching that's going on today. It's, it's powerless. It's lifeless. It's rooted in this world and not in the powers of the age to come, which break into time through the preaching of the gospel and administration of the sacraments. You see, in verse 14, 
Paul writes that united to Christ, sin will have no dominion over you because united to Christ, you have died to sin and its dominion over you. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. It remains. There are the remnants of sin, but it no longer reigns. In other words, you are no longer under the crushing weight and requirements of the law to save you. It's an impossibility anyway. You are no longer under the law to save you. You are under God's sovereign, saving, justifying grace in Christ. So then in verse 15, again, Paul anticipates the question about whether this divine grace permits or even encourages a life of unrepentant sin, a life lived according to the sinful flesh and in conformity to the world's godless values. Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, he says it for the second time, by no means, exclamation point. By no means. Paul is indignant with the notion that a person can be united to the resurrected, ascended, and exalted Christ, that a person can be united to Christ and under grace and still live in unrepentant patterns of sin in the mind and in the heart. And then he returns to the glorious truth that in Christ, through faith, we are no longer under the dominion of Satan, sin, and eternal death. Now we are under the dominion of Christ, righteousness, and eternal life. And he clarifies this gospel truth even more by introducing an inspired analogy. He introduces an inspired analogy, which leads us to our second heading. Look with me, if you will, now at verse 16. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Remember Paul's teaching from Romans 5, 12 through 21. All of humanity is united to whom? Adam, our first parent. He is the federal representative of all of humanity. And when Adam fell and Adam sinned, we fell and we sinned in him. We are not born with original righteousness as Adam was created with. We are born with original what? Sin. All of humanity is united to Christ in his fallen condition. It's why when we are born, we are born with original sin. It's why the world is the way it is today. Absolute, absolute madness. Moral anarchy. Reason is out the window. We are a million miles from our culture now holding to any semblance of a Christian worldview. Even those who proclaim to hold a Christian worldview, so many, and so many especially young people, are abandoning any kind of a bold witness because of shame because of concern that they might hurt someone's feelings, that they might get canceled by someone. 
rather than with love, with bold and courageous love, saying with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the American and to the Canadian and to the, uh, the European and to the Australian and, and whomever believes on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the world in which we live. All are in Adam. All are fallen. All are broken. The image of God is shattered within us. It's defaced. There is much confusion and sin in the world. And so what Adam is saying here, what God's word is teaching us here, it's teaching us that every person in the entire world is a slave of one kind or another. Every person in the world is a slave in one, of one kind or another, from the rich to the poor, from the highly educated to the ignorant, from the well-known to the unknown. Everyone is a slave, quote, look at Paul's words, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness either of sin, which leads to death, that is, spiritual death, and also what is understood as the second death, which is spiritual and physical death forever and ever in the fires of hell. That is what slavery to sin, dying in slavery to sin, is, is this is the result of that, the consequence of that. The wages of sin is death. And then it says, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's an interesting way to contrast death, sin, slavery to sin leading to death, or slavery to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And this righteousness thought of here is that righteousness that we will dwell in in eternal glory forever with God. In other words, dear ones, no one is truly autonomous. No one is truly autonomous. No human being is inherently free, as people like to think of themselves. One is either a slave of Satan under the dominion or realm of condemnation, sin, and death, or a slave of Christ under his realm of grace, righteousness, and life. So Paul's analogy of slavery would would help his first century readers to better understand their union with Christ, their communion with Christ, and its ethical implications for discipleship. In fact, the average first century Roman would know a lot about slavery, much more about slavery than, than we do. Uh, listen to this. Historians believe that upwards of 30% of the population in Rome were slaves. And it would be a higher number if you counted former slaves. Paul was writing from the city of Corinth to the church at Rome, and at least 30% of Corinth were, were slaves. Now think about that just for a moment, if that were true in our own day. You go to the grocery store, and three or four out of every 10 people you see are slaves. They're owned by others. In a book on life in ancient Rome, 
Now, the author states that there was a large labor force of slaves in Rome, and slavery took many different forms. Many were prisoners, were foreign prisoners of war, and thus forced into a life of slavery. It was said that in one war, there were 53,000 men captured, and they were immediately made slaves of the Roman kingdom. Others were captured in foreign lands and sold into slavery. Still others in Rome were were so-called debt slaves, making themselves bond servants to someone to whom they owed a massive debt. Slaves were everywhere in the ancient world. So this was a great analogy to employ here to help God's people understand their union with Christ and all of its ethical implications. John Murray explains that, quote, the institution of slavery, well known to his readers, is the medium through which Paul expresses the truth. In using this analogy drawn from the sphere of human relations, he speaks after the manner of men, end quote. What Paul means in verse 19. Look there in verse 19 where he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And as readers knew at least three things about slaves that would instruct them about slavery to sin or slavery to obedience. Number one, slaves were under the power of their master. Slaves were under the power of their master. Secondly, slaves were owned by their master. And thirdly, slaves lived to obediently serve their master. Slaves were under the power of their master. They were owned by their master. And they lived to obediently serve their master. With this in mind, look with me again at verse 16. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, remember what we considered last week in verses 12 through 14. Who are we presenting ourselves to? Who are we presenting our members to? And, and what are we using our members or ourselves or our intellects and our hands and our feet and our, our gifts? What are we... Who are we presenting ourselves to? He says there in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And we, we, we understood last week that this word instruments could be translated and probably should be translated weapons. We are in a spiritual war. Who are we presenting ourselves to in this war? Are we presenting ourselves to sin, to obey its lusts, and to use our members for unrighteousness, or are we presenting ourselves to God to use all of our members unto righteousness? In his inspired analogy, Paul personifies sin and obedience as two different masters. And he says that everyone in the world is under the dominion of one or the other. 
what he declares to his Christian readers in verse 17. Please look there with me. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and again, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Have become slaves of righteousness. But look what Paul says here. You were slaves of sin. You are no longer slaves of sin. United to Christ, dear Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under its power, its dominion. Secondly, you have become, in union with Christ, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is who you are in Christ, unless you're not in Christ, and you're still under the power and dominion of sin and living in the patterns of this present evil age in a life of unbelief, and you are, you are deceived by Satan and by false teaching that somehow you can live under the power and dominion of sin, obeying its lusts, doing all that it tells you to do, and God is just an afterthought, and you think, well, then this is okay still. I'm a Christian. This is what I am. You are, you are not according to those ideas. And so many are confused about this today. And, and if, if, if you are in this place where you have never, by God's grace, received Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no better time than now to repent of your sin and to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and to become a slave of righteousness for his sake, which is, as I will mention in a moment again, the greatest type of freedom. What does this mean, obedient from the heart? Did you notice Paul's words there, obedient from the heart? They really should stand out on the page. They, there are certain things that uh, just sort of come up off the page when studying the Bible. And this is, this is one of them, obedient from the heart. This is this is not merely outward obedience like that of the self-righteous Pharisees who Christ described as, as empty sepulchers, as, as tombs where on the inside they had rot, rotting bodies. On the outside they looked so clean and, and righteous, but the reality was in their hearts they were full of dead bones and unclean and not right with God. But he's saying to these Christians, you are no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness, obedient from the heart. This inward, sincere obedience, imperfect, imperfect, this side of heaven, this obedience will never be, be perfect. That's why we rest in the, the saving, imputed righteousness of Christ alone for our salvation, but it is sincere, and it's inward, and it's compelled by love for God and a heart set free to love God in this way. Obedience 
is the Holy Spirit-driven impulse of the heart united to Christ. Obedience is the Holy Spirit-driven and empowered impulse of the heart united to Christ. It's the pulse beat of the Christian's life to obey Christ and to obey Him according to the standard or pattern or form of doctrine that they were committed to and that we are committed to. What does this mean? Do you notice Paul's words there? What is this standard or form of teaching? Well, it's that form of teaching grounded in the true gospel. The gospel that Paul has been clearly setting forth, that good news that in Christ we are no longer under the dominion of sin and its terrible curse, but we are under grace. We are under grace and thus willing bond slaves of righteousness, grateful bond slaves of Jesus, the one who redeemed us to purify us. Look with me, flip back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at how the Apostle Paul introduces himself. I made a big deal of this 48 sermons ago. Paul, it says here in the ESV, a servant, a better translation is a bond servant or bond slave. Paul is saying, what I want you to understand me, about me, first and foremost, is not that I'm an apostle. It's not that I'm a teacher in the church. It's not that I know so much about the Old Testament. The first thing I want you to know about me is that I am a bond slave of Christ Jesus a bond slave of Christ Jesus. I wonder if we are thinking of ourselves in this way. Well, we should. This standard of teaching is the gospel and all of its implications connected to sanctification. John Calvin explains it this way. The standard of teaching to which Paul refers, quote, seems indeed to me to denote the formed image or impress of that righteousness which Christ engraves on our hearts. And this corresponds with the prescribed rule of law, of God's law, according to which all our actions ought to be framed so that they deviate not either to the right or to the left hand. Do you see what Paul, dear ones, is saying here? He is giving thanks to God. Thanks be to God because these Roman Christians who were once slaves to sin in Adam are now slaves to a life of righteousness, of growing righteousness in Christ and thus living a life of thankful, sincere, genuine growing obedience to what Christ is engraving on their hearts and has set forth in his word. Therefore, dear ones, you see how preposterous it is to say, oh, we are under grace. We are no longer under the crushing demands of the law to save us. We are now under grace. So should we sin? Should we live a life in sin? The notion that Christians, since Christians are under grace, they are free to live a life under sin, is not only unthinkable and ridiculous, it's blasphemous. It's an attack on Christ. 
It's an attack on the nature of the gospel itself and what God does in and through the gospel to bring us into union with Christ. That's why Paul responds so emphatically and even violently to the idea in verses 1 and 15. Grasping these truths, dear one, makes the exhortation in verse 19 much more understandable, doesn't it? Look with me there in verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's the way you once lived, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. Leading to conformity to the image of Christ. Leading to growth in grace. Leading to dying to sin and living more and more to righteousness. We are slaves to righteousness. Leading to sanctification. Dear ones, we are being exhorted in God's word to be who we are. In Christ, to be who we confess to be, and by grace are in Christ. By grace through faith, dear one, dear Christian, please hear this. By grace through faith, you are no longer in Adam and shackled to sin, but you are in Christ. You are united to Christ and thus have a new heart. You are a new creation in him and and you are by his grace a willing slave to a life of righteousness. That righteousness in which we live, those good works in which we do as the fruit of our salvation, never add one stitch to the saving righteousness that's given to us, that robe of righteousness given to us in Christ by which we are justified. The grounds of our salvation are Christ alone. Amen? Christ has done it all. He didn't say on the cross, it is almost finished. He said, it is finished. And salvation is full and and free and all-sufficient solely through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. In union with this crucified and risen and exalted Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer live in sin because we have been rescued from sin and the consequences of sin, which is eternal death. We are now United to Christ, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to Christ. And those who now live for his glory and are bond slaves to him, shackled to him. And there's no place we'd rather be. Where else do you want to be when you close your eyes in death, but shackled to Christ? What a savior. All the miserable and wicked things that we have done. All of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful deeds, all the things that we should have done that we didn't do, all the things we should have said that we never said, all of those sins, sins of omission and commission, on the cross, on the shoulders of Christ, 
He bore them. He became sin for you, that you would become the righteousness of God in him. And he paid the wages of your sins and my sins, those wages being death. And he went into the grave. And on the third day, he rose again because he was innocent. He sinned not. He broke no laws. He did not transgress the law of God. And so he could not be kept in the jaws of death. He rose from the dead. And in him, we have risen. In him, we have been made alive. There is something supernatural that happens when we are born again. I asked uh, President Jonathan Master from Greenville Seminary to preach uh, at the GRN conference about the need for preachers to preach the new birth because we don't hear much about it anymore. Jesus said in John 3, you must be what? Born again. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. This means that something supernatural must happen. And something supernatural does happen. And it's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. To all who believe. There is no distinction. Christ, we have been set free to be whom God has created us to be in fellowship with himself and living according to his righteous standard. Dear ones, true freedom, true freedom, the ultimate freedom is to be a bond slave of Jesus Christ. John Murray explains it this way, quote, the new life in Christ is not slavery as it exists among men, It is the highest and only freedom. The new life in Christ is not slavery as it exists among men. It is the highest and only freedom. Leads us to our last heading, a glorious redeemer. Jesus is a glorious redeemer, amen? He is Exceedingly lovely. He bears the marks of love on his hands and his feet for you, for me. He dwells in the presence of his Father. He prays for you. He represents you. You are seated with him in the heavenly places, even now, mysteriously but truly. He is exceedingly lovely. He is beautiful beyond words. So we should love him. So we should trust him. He is a glorious redeemer, and so we should. No, we we must obey him. Dear Christian, he has set you free from sin, saving you to be an obedient slave of righteousness in Christ, your master and king. And once again, we are saved from the dominion and power of sin. Sin no longer reigns on the throne of our lives. Christ does, but sin still remains. And that work of progressive sanctification is what God the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives through the means of grace, 
through the fellowship of the church, through our suffering, he is making us more like his son. And so we live this life dying more and more to sin and living more and more unto righteousness and giving God the glory, even as we are totally and fully justified right now by grace through faith before God's judgment seat. But there is a process happening called sanctification whereby we are being made more and more into the image of of Christ. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have been purchased from the slavery of sin. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now listen, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Present your members to God as instruments or weapons of righteousness because you have been set free from sin. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. This is the implication of union with Christ. We are not our own. And this is indeed our greatest and only lasting comfort. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Ursinus wrote in 1563, answer, that I am not my own. That's my greatest comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from what? All the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things in God's providence must work together for my ultimate salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Bond slave of Christ, you own me, you save me, I'm so full of love and gratitude for what you've done in my life. Now I offer my heart to you and I'm ready and willing to serve you. Not perfectly. I will always need and be grounded in alone the work of Christ for my salvation. But oh, how I want to serve you. Oh Lord, work in my life that I would not 
understand grace as cheap grace. God's grace is not cheap grace. Giving deliverance without discipleship. Liberation without sanctification. No, when God liberates us in Christ, not only does He forgive us and declare us justified through faith in Him, He sanctifies us through His means of grace and a life, a Spirit-empowered life devoted to our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And is there any Master more worthy of our sincerest love and deepest devotion? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you for this sacred, inspired, illuminating analogy. Here we see, Lord, that all men and women and boys and girls are either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience your son. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would be pleased to draw from death to life those who are still in their sins, and that you would encourage and strengthen all of our faith as we seek to live a life obedient from the heart that is pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name.